Tonight we want to again return to the Word of God and look at the Gospel of Mark and look at how to be prepared for ministry. The disciples of Christ had a rich and a varied exposure to their Master. From their earliest days, they were exposed to so many elements of His ministry and service. And as we look at the Gospel of Mark and as we continue to study it, I want us to focus in upon a question that is so very important for us, and that is, what were the keys that brought the disciples of Christ to a future place of usefulness? What were the components of ministry that Jesus wanted them to know, that He wanted them to learn with regard to their being useful in ministry and service? Well, as we have studied the Gospel of Mark together and as we've looked at these things, you know that, first of all, they were all, every one of them, called directly by Christ to be with Himself. And that's the first place to start. You have to be called into this ministry. Anyone who is ministering for Christ has to be called into that ministry by Christ to that service. And the disciples were called by Christ to be with Him so that they might learn from Him and be taught by Him. For instance, in Mark 1.17, Jesus said to Simon and Andrew and James and John, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And in verses 21 to 28 of Mark chapter 1, it tells us that immediately they began to observe Christ and their following Him of His teaching ministry in the synagogues and also witnessing His divine display of power and casting a demon out of a man. They watched him, for instance, as they saw him heal Peter's own mother-in-law, as recorded in Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 31. They saw also that Jesus healed everyone who came to him who were ill with various diseases, and that he was casting out many devils. And no doubt they also heard Jesus awake early and go out into the early morning hours to a lonely place to pray, as recorded in Mark 1.35. The disciples, as they followed Him, watched Him intently as He healed a man of leprosy in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. They saw Him heal a par paralytic man and then actually declare to that man that his sins were forgiven. In Mark chapter 2, they watched as he was confronted by the religious leaders of the day and how he confronted them with their sin. They were all present when he chose them to be his special representatives and that they might spend time with him and that he might send them out to preach. They listened intently as he taught them what it meant to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and to commit the unpardonable sin. They sat at His feet and heard Him teach the parable of the sower. They saw Him calm the sea, calm the storm, and heal the gathering demoniac. The disciples were eyewitnesses of the incident with the woman with the hemorrhage and the healing of Jairus' daughter. And so, if you were able to take each of those sections of the earlier parts of Mark's Gospel before this account in Mark 6, the disciples have already heard and seen and been exposed to much 
in the life and ministry of Christ. And from the very beginning, these disciples of Christ have learned incredible things by watching and looking and listening at the Son of God. And now, according to the plan of Christ, He believes they're ready. He wants to send them out to teach and to preach and to heal. Apparently, all of that exposure, all of that ministry for which they have looked and looked, but have been up to this point silenced, the silence is over, and now they are going to be commissioned themselves to assist Christ in His ministry. This is their time. Now, this is very, very clear in the discipleship ministry of Jesus. He called people to Himself. He ministered to them. He forgave their sin. He healed them if need be. He taught them most assuredly. He allowed them to spend time with Him. And through that process of time, they began to look and listen and learn. But we all come to the place where we must transfer all of that information, all of that insight, all of the teaching that we receive into action. It never comes to us without our opportunity and obligation to turn all that we've learned and all that we've seen and all that we do into a ministry in and among ourselves. And this is exactly what Mark has brought us to. The disciples themselves, according to Christ, are ready. And he says this in Mark chapter 6, verse 6. And he was going around the villages teaching. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. This is a text that gives us very, very clear instruction as to how to be prepared for ministry. It may not appear to be so on the surface, but it is. And Jesus, in his own time, is teaching his own disciples how to be excellently prepared for ministry. And as I read and study this text, I see four things clearly brought to us here about how to prepare for ministry. A four preparation points, we could say, for an excellent ministry. And the first is to understand the context of our ministry. The second, our clothing. The third, our conduct. And fourth, the very content of our message itself. And you say, well, that is something that might be clear to the disciples themselves and at this time, but how does that really relate to me and my ministry? I mean, what about clothing? How does that really transfer itself into what I need to do and I need to apply in my own life today? Well, 
you keep your ears open tonight because it'll become very, very clear to you as we move along. Now, the context of our ministry and the context for this particular passage is clear. In the latter part of verse 6, it says, And he was going around the villages teaching. And that's a transitional sentence here in Mark's Gospel. And it's also a good illustration, by the way, of the poor verse divisions in our Bible. Because you notice that this is a, a verse that's hanging on from a previous context. It's really something that should be divided, and that little phrase, going around the village's teaching, should actually be a part of verse 7, shouldn't it? Well, this belongs to this particular context. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus was going around the villages teaching. In fact, Matthew 9.35 tells us that Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And it is obvious now that Jesus believes that his teaching must be multiplied through the commissioning of his disciples in order to ensure that the task of the kingdom of God is completed. And so in verse 7, the Bible says, And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. And you say, what's the significance of this? Why in pairs? Well, it's actually a very, very significant statement. The context is this. Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching powerfully, and he's healing. And when he believes that the time has come for the multiplication of his ministry, he sends out his disciples and he sends them out in pairs to complete the task. This commissioning of the twelve has a very, very interesting parallel in the Jewish practices of the day about how people would go about the work of the kingdom of God. In fact, the Jews of Jesus' day were fond of saying this, the sent one is as the man who commissioned him. In other words, discipleship was so important and so crucial and it was so comprehensive that once a person believed that their disciple had learned all that they needed to learn, it was as though the one who sent that one and the one who was sent were one and the same. The discipleship in Jesus' day was intense. It was all-inclusive. It was a life message and a life journey. It's not like the discipleship that we might often hear about or see lived out in our own day. It wasn't just that they sat around the, the coffee table and began to memorize a couple of passages and then the two people left and had virtually no relationship to each other for days. No, this was a living together. This was a journeying together. This was a, a fighting together through the elements of Satan and his kingdom. Uh, this was everything that marked what true discipleship is all about. All of the things that I talked to you about in the introduction with all of these passages and all of the experiences and the disciples going with Jesus in a boat, uh, spending the night with him over in that gathering area where the demoniac, demoniac was located, uh, coming back to the other side of the shore of the Sea of Galilee and staying in this location and going over to Peter's mother-in-law's house and staying there. They were together all the time. And they saw all of the best about everything around them and all of the worst. They saw people responding to Christ and they saw people rejecting Christ. 
And when they responded to Christ, Jesus told them why and how. When they rejected him, he told them why and how. And when they were confused, they asked him questions, and he answered them. And when they were joyful, he affirmed their joy with them. When they were tired, they ate. When they were, when they were tired, they slept. When they were hungry, they ate. They watched how Jesus dealt with his physical body. They watched him as he prayed. They looked at him. They studied him. He looked at them, and he was intently gazing upon their reaction to all that he was doing and saying. It was what we might say today, two people closer than brothers. And this was real discipleship. And what we have now is Jesus saying about them and to them, you're ready to go out. And you're ready to go out, and I want you to go out in pairs. You say, what's the significance of going out in pairs? Well, there's a very interesting background to this. This is consistent also with Jewish tradition. And it shows, frankly, a very striking similarity with Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, where the Israelites on the, on the eve of the Exodus from Egypt are commanded to eat the Passover in haste. And in Exodus 12, 11, it says that you must eat this Passover quickly with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. That sounds strikingly similar to this, doesn't it? Jesus' words would have hearkened them immediately back to the words of the Exodus. Because remember, these were fastidious Jews with regard to the law. These fishermen, even though they might have had an occupation, were also very, very careful to understand their Old Testament. And when Jesus would send them out in pairs and give them the kind of instruction in this passage, they would know exactly what he was referring to. It would hearken them all the way back to the Exodus account, and they would understand, aha, we're being sent out just like they were in the old time. And even this instruction about going out in pairs is significant. You remember that in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, a testimony of truth, a testimony of a witness to the truth, could only be established on the basis of two or three witnesses, right? The New Testament affirms that in a couple of different places. In fact, when he told them to go out in pairs, it might even have been that they understood uh, the relationship to each other like is understood in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, where Solomon says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. You see, Jesus knows that to send these disciples out in pairs is to be a valid witness and a testimony to the truth of what was being said. And it would also be a tremendous encouragement as the two would go out together. You see, Jesus, in the context of life and in the commissioning of these disciples, knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what the plan is. And he's sending these disciples out in the precise way that they should go for optimum ministry. Well, 
You look at verse 8 in Mark 6 and you begin to wonder exactly what is going on. For in that text it says, And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, Do not put on two tunics. You say, That is strange. Why the... Why the incredibly detailed response as to exactly what they should be wearing? Does that really matter? Uh, does it really matter what a person has on when they go out preaching the kingdom of God? Apparently, according to Christ, it does. He first of all says they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. You say, what's the point? Well, think about it. The staff, at that time in the history of the world in uh, pre-automobile days was a walking journey, right? And in their walking journey, when they w would walk beside these dirt roads, they would normally travel with a staff, with a maybe a shepherd's crook or a rod or uh, some piece of, of a wooden stick that would help them in their journey. You say, why? Well, think about it. In that time, if they were to have a staff or a rod, it would help them balance their journey because the roads themselves were uneven, weren't they? And also, if you were walking along the road and you were maybe in the wilderness of Judea, you would also have to fend off a wild animal who might come up uh, to try to eat you for lunch. And so Jesus says here, take nothing for your journey except a mere staff. Apparently, he told them this mere staff was the only appropriate item that they were to have, not even a, a shepherd's rod. They weren't even supposed to take any luggage. Uh, they weren't to go into the wilderness area with anything other than this stick. You say, why would he say that? Why would this be important? And why would he not tell them to take more things so that they would be uh, more plentiful in their journey, whether it be food or something like that? And of course the answer is he wants them to trust him fully. He wants them to trust Him fully. It was an obvious way of forcing them to depend completely and totally upon God for everything. Their food, their shelter, their very life, their sustenance, everything about them. And He says, I don't want you to even have any bread. Isn't that so very interesting? I mean, you would assume He'd say, gather as much food and supplies as you possibly can because when you go out in your ministry to preach the kingdom of God, you need to be well fed. You need to be well cared for. Everything about this journey is important and you need to have an optimum journey with everything about this journey supplied for you so that you can concentrate in your mind on your message, right? Well, that's probably what we would say today. For any ministry, whether it's overseas or here, uh, we must have a plan, a plan of action. We must have it written down. It, it, it needs to be checked twice. We need to make sure that people have all the money they need. They need to have all of the food that they could care for. Everything must be planned, checked, and double-checked. But that's not what Jesus wanted them to do here. Their existence was going to be provided by God Himself. And it would parallel exactly what Jesus has been doing, completely dependent upon His Heavenly Father. 
And would that not also hearken back to the wilderness wanderings of the Jews, the Exodus, when they were desperate for sustenance, and what did God provide for them? Manna. In effect, Jesus is saying, listen, you go on that journey. I only want you to take a stick with you, not even a, a shepherd's rod, and I want you to have no bread because God will be your supplier of everything. He'll take care of everything. He even says, don't take a bag. No bag. Normally, when a traveler in these days would walk along a path, they would have a, a traveler's bag. You might even you know, refer to it as a, a beggar's bag, uh, something for which they could carry uh, their provisions. If they had a few coins that they might be able to pick up as they begged for provision along the way, and Jesus says none of that. And they would generally and normally throw this bag over their shoulder as they were walking. And Jesus says, I, I, do, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to be collecting alms along the way. Now, why would he say that? Well, it, it would be obvious. If someone were preaching the message of the kingdom of God, and they had this beggar's bag across their shoulder, and they began to ask people for money in addition to preaching the gospel message, what might someone think? Well, they might not be in this for only the things they're telling me. Uh, how much more money is available in that bag? How many other people have they asked money from? When I was living in Southern California, it would be fascinating for me to drive along the streets of the inner city of the complex of Los Angeles. And I'd be driving along and I'd pull up to a stoplight and there'd be a man with a sign that would say, uh, we'll work for food. And I would watch at the light that people, just one after one after one as they were stopping there, and he would walk along the cars with this sign, and he always looked disheveled, and he was bearded, and, and he always looked as though he was on his last leg, and he would hold out this, this bucket or a cup or a bag, and people would just be dropping money into the bag. And I remember watching one of those news magazine programs on television where they would follow some of these people. And they would watch what they would do. And some of these people, maybe not all of them, but many of them, would, at, at the end of the day, as they were followed, would be going to their brand new car somewhere. And they would have a camera on this person and they would take off all of these dirty clothes and take off the cap and sort of take off the disguise. And they would go into this new car and they even walked up to some of them and would confront them and say, what are you doing? And these people would admit, this is a scam. This is not some beggar. I made $50,000 last year doing this. And they'd laugh and say, it's better than working. You see that people don't need to respond to anything other than the message of the gospel. And you see that Jesus very wisely is saying, listen, don't make money an issue. Don't make food and your need for it an issue. Don't make your provisions an issue. Trust God. He'll supply your needs. He even says here, no money in their belt. No food, no bag, no money, no money to buy the necessities, all showing the principle of what we could call functional simplicity. 
just be simple in your lifestyle and function with a trust in God that shows that your message is the issue, not your own needs. Remember in Matthew 6, he'll say later, listen, if you seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added unto you. And what are those all things? The basic necessities of life. Listen, if God is going to care for the lilies of the field, if God is going to care for a, a king like Solomon who's a, arrayed in all of his glory and yet will do so for the lilies of the field as well, what do you have to worry about? Make sure you understand this. Money and possessions can easily get into the way of the ministry. And Jesus wants them, as they go out in ministry for the first time, as his commissioned disciples, no issues of distraction. That's his point. Don't be distracted by the issues of life. Trust God and he will supply your needs. The Matthew 10.10 10 parallel passage says, the functional simplicity of your life, the worker is worthy of his support. You just keep working the work of the ministry. You just keep preaching. You just keep teaching. You just keep doing the work that God has commissioned you to do, and God will supply every need. Did not Paul himself say in Philippians 4, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. If God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, I think he can take care of you. That's the point. He does say, however, in verse 9, wear sandals. But the point probably is, don't have a second pair of sandals. Don't attempt to carry or purchase another pair. Just be functionally simple in your life. Boy, does this tell us a lot about our own lives? about materialism, about the gaining of possession? Does it tell us that we who are involved in the ministry, and every one of us are involved in ministry, if we know Christ, we're in the ministry. And if we're in the ministry, the issue is this. Functionally live a simplified life. Don't be caught up with the stuff of this world. I mean, even go so far for Paul to say in 1 Corinthians 7, listen, if you want to be totally freed up, don't even be married. Be as I am. For if you become married, you're concerned about the stuff of this world, how you're going to please your spouse. If you want to be totally freed up, just be concerned about yourself alone. Trust God with the possessions of your life and make sure you preach the message of the gospel of the kingdom. You know, it just seems to me that that hits right at the United States of America. When I went to the former Soviet Union, and I remember at one point watching these men as I would teach them through the day, and these men were sort of gobbling up every bit of gospel truth that they could have in order to be involved in maximum ministry. And I remember, I think I told you one time there was a, particular man that I watched him when some of the other men were teaching and I was sitting in the back of the room and this particular man was trying to, to soak up all of the teaching and I noticed him and he was fascinating to me because he kept putting something down on a piece of paper and he was not having his eyes off the page that far and I was wondering what it was that he was doing because he was so close to the page. It was almost as though he was 
near blind or was not really understanding anything that was going on. He, he just looked like he was very troubled. And I afterwards went up to him and I grabbed a translator and I went and talked to him and I said, are you all right? And he said, yes. And he started to cry and he said, I love the Lord and I want to know his word. And I asked him, well, what were you doing with your, your head almost down on the page, almost as though you were either ill or trying to sleep or couldn't stay awake? What was it? And he took the little instrument that he had in his hand, and when I looked at it, it was a piece of pencil lead about that big. That's the only pencil that he had to take notes. And he wasn't able to have a pencil sharpener. And so the lead fell out of the pencil. And yet, because he wanted to make sure that he took the notes so that he could have a maximum ministry, the only thing he could do was take that little piece of lead between his fingers and try to write with it. And I thought to myself, now that's a man who's committed to ministry, committed to doing the work of the ministry, and is functionally simple, not by choice, but by force. And so I was sufficiently smitten because I looked inside my jacket pocket and I had three or four pens. And so I gave them all to him. And you should have seen his face. It was almost like he was a kid in a candy store. I gave him those three or four pens and if he were to speak the same language as I, he might say, I'm set for life. And I thought to myself, I live in a different arena where pens and pencils are in vast abundance, but we're not writing things down as we should, as though they are our very life. This guy, by, by God's design, had nothing, but that which he had, he was using it up for the glory of God. And I thought to myself, this man has nothing and I have everything. And I asked him, I said, what, what do you do? What kind of job do you have? And he said, I'm a physician. And I thought to myself, even in that society, a physician who is a Christian is ostracized. And he had been fired from his occupation because of his Christianity. And he had become an itinerant minister. And he was just trying to serve the Lord, and he heard about this pastor's conference that we were having, and so he just showed up. And so we gave him everything we had. And I thought, you know, that's a living illustration of what Jesus is attempting to teach here to these very disciples. Listen, don't be caught up with the stuff. Don't be caught up with the stuff of this life. And we become so bent out of shape if we don't have everything the way we believe it ought to be. If we don't have the pencil sharpener, it's a problem. And he was saying, no, it's not a problem. Even if I have to use the last vestige of the lead of a pencil by itself with no pencil at all, I'll do it. And you know, all of this, all of this text is really telling us one simple spiritual principle. Total dependence. Total dependence. When you're in ministry, the principle for you and I 
is to be totally dependent upon the Lord. Do you trust in the Lord and His provision? Do you seek to gain wealth? Do you see your clothing as a way to be admired and, and complimented? Are you content with your home? Are you content with the things that the Lord has given you? So that they only become for you a platform for ministry. That's it. That's all the stuff that we have is ever designed to be. A platform for ministry. That's it. You have a nice home. If God has blessed you in that way, is it a platform for ministry to others? Do you entertain believers and unbelievers alike in the home that God has blessed you with? If He's given you a vehicle, if He's given you two or three, do you use it for the context of ministry? If you have resources beyond others, if you have more money than you need, what are you doing with it? Are you giving it away for the sake of the Lord and His Word? Are you humbly receiving instruction from the Lord regarding your ministry to others? What would we say? What would we say if somehow we knew that from the Lord we were told, in the context of your ministry or mine, no cars, no house, no provisions other than the barest essentials of life, would we be as motivated for ministry? Would we see it as the great gift of God to release us from the materialism of our age? Or would we say, I just can't do it this way? You see, from the very beginning, Jesus wants His disciples to know that materialism, the stuff, the provisions of this life aren't the most important issues. In fact, they're really not issues at all. But He doesn't stop there. Notice verse 10 and the conduct they're to have. And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake off the dust from the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Now, we understand now the clothing issue, right? But what about this particular conduct? Why are they supposed to, in essence, blow off the people around them if they don't receive the Word? Well, he wants them to make sure that whenever you go into a village or a city, you need to be shrewd in inquiring of those to whom you might be staying. You remember that, again, there weren't any hotels in this time. You didn't just go into a city as an itinerant evangelist and uh, set up shop with a crusade and a big tent or a big convention center. And you didn't stay in the hotel across the street. Whenever you did ministry in this context, you were completely dependent on other people. And maybe you went into a town that you'd never been in before and you needed some lodging somehow. And remember, if you're a disciple and you only have a stick in the middle of a dirt road and you come to a city, uh, there's not much provision unless the graciousness of others can come upon you. And yet, Jesus is saying that when you come to a house or you come to a village or a location, be smart, be shrewd about whom you're staying with. Now, we don't know how long these stays might be, and we don't know all the details of what you might ask of the person you're staying with, or what were the, the issues that would satisfy you in terms of staying there. We do know a few things. We know that in the didache, which is a 
instruction book about the Jews and their life that they believed that if a person stayed for longer than three days, it was an indication of a false intention on their part. Maybe they wanted to stay a whole lot longer. Maybe they'd like to stay, maybe they'd like to move you out and stay in. And so maybe they were saying to themselves, listen, we only want to stay a couple of days in any one location. In the culture of the time, we don't want to stay beyond a three-day period to wear, wear out our welcome. And he says, any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go from there, shake off the dust from the soles of your feet as a testimony against them. Apparently, it was the custom of pious Jews of the time who traveled outside of Israel to look at the non-Jews around them and to study them intently. And if you stayed in any area, in any alien land, and if you believed that someone were specifically rejecting the message, the custom of the day was to actually, in the symbolic fashion, take your sandals off and uh, wrap them together and have the dust go flying as a symbolic statement about those who are rejecting who you are. And so apparently they were to be very fastidious about the people they were to stay with. It was almost as if they were saying that they were washing their hands of the whole situation if you rejected the message. Try that on for size the next time you do some evangelism. You see, it was much more clear-cut then. God is the God of the Jews. Jesus is the one who has come to save His people from their sins. You should repent and follow Him. And anyone who didn't, they rejected them. It was a testimony, it was a sign of judgment. And they would be saying that if they left that location and the person ultimately rejected their message, that they were to be judged because, because they had not listened to the Word of God. What were they not listening to? Verse 12. And they, they went out and preached that men should repent. In other words, it was a message of repentance. That was the message. And you could assume that people who were living their own lifestyle were doing their own thing, were having it their way. Someone came into your life and said, repent. You might receive some negative reaction. And if you did, you just shaked off, you shook off the dust of your feet and you hightailed it out of there as a testimony, as a judgment against them. And it was, my friends, a strong message. Repentance as the, at that time as is our own day. A fundamental change of mind. I must change the way I approach my thinking. I must change my life. I love what it says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. God through Paul commended the Thessalonians and he says, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You see, that's repentance. You turn to God, but that means that you also turn from something. And these evangelists of Jesus' time were saying, you must turn, you must repent of the way that you've been living. You must come to the Messiah. And this was a message that was very, very clear. Look with me just for a moment at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. This was the teaching of the church. It began here, right here. 
with Jesus telling them, this is the content of your message. People must repent. And this was the teaching of the early church. This was their message. This was the gospel, folks. Acts 2.38. Peter said to them in his preaching, in his message, repent. Repent. And each of you be baptized. In other words, show the outward signs of that internal or inward repentance in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 19. This is the message that Jesus sent and this is the faithful preaching of that message. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You see, it was over and over and over again, part and parcel of the message. Repent, repent. Change your thinking, which inevitably leads to a change of behavior. Acts chapter 8, verse 22. He says, Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Repent. That was the message of the church. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. Even beyond the Jews and their message to each other, when they went and preached to the Gentiles, the message excuse me, was repent. Repent and believe. And verse 18 says, And when they, the, the Jews, heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, <clears throat> saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God grants repentance, it's a gift from God, and that is part and parcel of the gospel message. And so the, the context of any ministry is this, be prepared, know your surroundings. Uh, the clothing issue means functional simplicity in your life, and the content of your ministry is repent, repent. Turn from your evil ways. Acts chapter 13, verse 24 after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Acts chapter 15, verse 19. Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. That's repentance. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Acts chapter 26. You can just see through the whole flow of the book of Acts this issue of repentance. This is the gospel. Acts 26, 20. But Paul kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Even Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.25, perhaps God would grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Now, I, I give you all of these passages from the book of Acts because... 
as I've read Christian literature over the last several years, for about the last decade, there are reams of books that have been written that say that repentance is not a part of the gospel. And I say to myself, what Bible are they reading? It's all over the book of Acts. Repentance, repentance, repentance. Even Jesus himself said, and when you go out, disciples, here's your message. Men must repent. We must turn to God. This is our mandate. He says in Mark 6.13, the message of repentance, when people really come in faith and repentance, it says at least for these disciples, they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. You see, God was supernaturally confirming that these were the disciples of the true Messiah. There were probably a lot of other people that were doing a lot of other things, but this, my friends, was a genuine confirmation uh, that this was the message sent from God. You can't do this unless God is with you. You can't raise people from the dead. You can't be like Peter, just walking along in a particular city uh, and someone is healed by the very presence of your shadow or touching the cloak of your garment and being healed. Now, God was confirming this message of repentance by allowing these to be the representatives of Jesus who would actually do the same things that Jesus did. And he says, the reason why you're able to do these things, verse 7, and he was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. They did what they did only by his power, which confirmed both his messiahship and their message. You see, really, when you look at a passage like this and you sort of break it down as I have tonight, when you read it on your own and you are reading the Bible through in a year or you're reading the Gospels and you read an account like this and you hear that Jesus tells them about their clothing or about this issue of a rod or a staff on their journey, do you just sort of move past it? Or do you just say to yourself, I, I don't really understand what that means. It probably was for that time and that season, and it doesn't apply to me at all. Well, you may not have a physical application here, but the spiritual implications are overwhelming. Their clothing was indicative of their total dependence on the Lord. And do we need that dependence? Their conduct was to witness to the truth, to receive the message to preach that message. And if someone didn't receive it, they were to reject them. We have people who receive our message and others who reject it as well. And the content of their message was to preach a message of repentance. That's our message. That's what we do. Is it any less our duty to take the spiritual implications of a message like that and say, okay, Lord, I know what you expect of me. It's not maybe the issue of a of a stick on a dusty road in Jerusalem or Judea. But the issue of my life is when I evaluate my stuff, do I put more value in the things around me than in the ministry that you've given me? Am I bent out of shape when things don't go my way, when I don't receive this or that in the material dimension of my life, uh, when I'm not able to acquire this possession or that? Is my mind occupied with these things and away from the message itself? You see, this is the point of the text. 
Do I look at the gospel that I preach to others and do I see it as the gospel of repentance where people are commanded through me as I preach that message to understand that Jesus is saying to them and their life, you must turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Or do I say to myself, boy, I'm not only not preaching the gospel of repentance, I'm not preaching the gospel at all. And when the people around me are perishing, do I look at them as Jesus would over the mass of humanity and say, these are sheep without a shepherd. I must go to them. I must live my Christianity out for them. And when I look at the issue of my own life, do I see it as a, a message of functional simplicity and absolute authority and power from Jesus Himself to live a selfless, crucified life in the midst of a perverse generation? That's, that's the message for us. We can take this kind of text and it oozes with application for our lives. And when it does, we have to unmistakably stand before the Lord and say, Lord, you're right. I'm not doing some of these things. I must seek your forgiveness for not functionally simplifying my life. Lord, I must realize that I have to take my eyes off of the stuff of this world. And I have to look in total dependence upon you for every issue of life. And Lord, I must preach the right message, the message of repentance. I want you to bow your heads. And as you bow your heads, I want you to ask yourself, what's my perspective on my stuff? Do I... Do I live a simplified life? And it could be from someone who has virtually nothing. Because they could be desiring the stuff as much as someone who has everything who's grabbing even more. Lord, do I, do I continue to think about the stuff I don't have and wondering why I don't have it? Or do I have the stuff and yet still want more? Lord, I may not know what the balance is and how much is too much, how much is too little, but I know that You know. And I know that my trust and my dependence must be on You and You alone and then you will supply my needs. And if I don't seek it, and then receive it, I know that I can receive it from you as a blessing, because I didn't seek it. I thank you for the money and provisions that you have provided for me. But Lord, I don't want them to be so important to me that I lose myself in the stuff of this world. And Lord, what about my message? What about my conduct? 
and the content of my ministry. Am I encouraging people to repent? Am I warning them about the life to come? Am I like the one who said he was as a dying man preaching to dying men? We're all dying every day. Our bodies are decaying. We're slowing down. Lord, in the degeneration of our physical bodies, our hearts can actually be renewed day by day and that by a willingness and a desire and a passion to bring others to Jesus Christ. Lord, I want to do that. Give me opportunity and time and I'll supply the effort. And if you would use me as an instrument with my schoolmates, my co-workers, maybe even those in my own home as I live out the life of continual repentance, even as a believer, saying no to the stuff of this world and saying yes to a simplified life and a passion to preach the gospel. Lord, that's what we desire. And when we are caught up with the things that mitigate against that desire, may you cause us, as you are doing so tonight, to repent even now and to start afresh and anew. Thank you for the message of our ministry. Thank you for the ministry itself. We couldn't even be thinking of these things unless you had opened our blind eyes and caused us to see the glorious light of the gospel of truth. May we not be caught up with this world. We're just passing through. We love you and we ask that you would be pleased with our lives as a living sacrifice. Make our ministry what you would have it to be. In Christ's name. Amen.